We approach a high and a holy mystery today, indeed the greatest one. It's what C.S. Lewis famously called the grand miracle. He said the central miracle by, uh, asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They, Christians, say that God became man. We dare to say that. And that every other miracle prepares for this, exhibits this, or results from this. It all builds on this. Every miracle, in some way, relates to this one. Whatever Christmas entails for you, this is what makes Christmas Christmas for us. Lewis again says this, Christianity does not tell of a human search for God. It's not that we are men and women of goodwill who search for a higher ideal. Christianity does not tell of a human search for God, but of something done by God for, to, and about man. God's saving work for man grows narrower and narrower, sharpens at last into one small bright point like the head of a spear. It is a Jewish girl at her prayers. All humanity, as far as concerns its redemption, has narrowed to that. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter one, verse 25. Luke 1, 25. As you read it, just think that this is likely family members of Mary or Mary herself that Luke has talked things over with. As he said, he researched well and she told her story. Hear God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy and the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. 
And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed! Are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb? And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit exalts in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The grass withers and the flowers fade and this beautiful word endures forever. Amen. I just got two points First is, what does the story say about our faithful Savior? And then what does the story say about our faithful response? A faithful Savior, faithful servants. So what does the story say about our faithful Savior? Well, our story says that the creator becomes the creature. The story tells about how the author of the whole drama of history becomes the pivotal actor within history. God moves from working from without to working from within. As one of us, if you think of it in terms of World War II, it goes from the U.S. supplying aid to Britain in World War II to the U.S. declaring war and sending troops into World War II. God got involved personally as one of us God himself enters the war against sin. He didn't stay removed from that. He entered it, and he had to enter it. 
So how? Well, God sends his messenger of good news, his angel Gabriel. It just seems like Gabriel comes with good news. He did with Daniel, he comes with Zechariah and with Mary. He sends him from the heavenly throne room. He occupies this inner circle of angels before the throne of glory. He sends him from that distinguished place. He sends him to this remote little backwater village called Nazareth that nobody cared much for, located in an other side of the tracks region in the north of Palestine. Galilee, place of darkness, Isaiah said. He sends him to a young virgin who lives there who's engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. He sends him to Mary. That doesn't seem like a very impressive way to enter a war, not even to declare war. I mean, at least when Gabriel met with Zechariah to speak of the birth of the forerunner, He met with a a priest of Israel on duty in the temple, in public worship, and in the capital city of Jerusalem. It makes sense. Yet, how different is the announcement of the Savior to Mary? He makes it to this unknown teenager at home, in private, and of all places, in Nazareth. And yet the tone of the setting of the announcement appropriately matches the tone of the ministry of the Redeemer. Or another way to say it, the way the king enters the world prepares the way for the way the king had to save the world. He just keeps going down and he must keep stooping down. And though by the world standards, this event is completely inconsequential, the true nature of it is completely unprecedented. It's more astonishing than the whole creation itself. So Gabriel appears to Mary in her family's little hut, and he says to her, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. I mean, what a greeting. Both the words greeting and favored derive from the word grace. God sends his gospel messenger, Gabriel, to Mary to tell her she is the recipient of grace, of God's unmerited favor. And he underscores this by reassuring her that God is with her. And how that helps her is that right at the start, Gabriel reassures her that no matter what I'm about to say, Just know God is with you to help you. And before this, Luke says she's greatly troubled. In fact, the form of the verb means that she was even more troubled than Zechariah was, and that completely makes sense. Well, teenage girl getting a visit from an angel. But she immediately turns, as the text says, to pondering and thinking. That's a characteristic of Mary. She's thinking through the significance of what Gabriel has declared to her, right there on the spot. So Gabriel comforts her again and says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And that's an Old Testament expression. Doesn't mean that she's earned it. Again, favor is grace here. For example, God says that to Noah 
when he commissions him to build the ark, it says in the midst of all the mess of this world, this one man, not because he was better than the others, but God says, you found favor in my eyes. You're gonna be a type of redeemer. I'm gonna build an ark. And God's saying something similar, even greater to Mary here. The sense is out of my good pleasure and grace, I set my favor on you and I'm gonna use you in a unique way for your good and for the world's good. It underscores the fact right here that salvation is of the Lord. It's always of the Lord. God's breaking into this war zone in his grace. And so what is this unprecedented thing that Gabriel says is gonna happen? What is it that most fills you and me with this unbridled joy of Christmas? Gabriel announces to Mary this young virgin, virgin engaged to be married that, that she will conceive in her womb and bear a son and she'll name him Jesus, which comes from Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. And as becomes clear, the, the future when she will conceive is not after her marriage, it's before her marriage, while she's still a virgin. And this person that she's going to conceive is more than just a powerful leader. Gabriel says he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Now Gabriel said about John that he's gonna be great before the Lord. It's noteworthy that he says about Jesus, he's just gonna be great. It's unqualified. In fact, in the Old Testament, this absolute way of speaking is reserved exclusively for God. Psalm 48.1, for example, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Mary, who knows her Bible, we know that, has this announcement, he's gonna be great. He's hinting at the mind-boggling nature of who this son's gonna be. He's gonna be great like God is great. If you can imagine that. And he'll be son of the most high. Most high is a designation for God that stresses his, his greatness, his supreme authority. I mean, think of Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the most high will dwell in the shadow of the almighty. When does that verse mean a lot to you? How often do you use the phrase for God in your prayers, your most high? Do we approach our days like God is most high, like I'm not most high? And the fact that you're most high is an incredible comfort. This all hints at the great mystery going on, yet, yet first the way Luke emphasizes it is he underscores the role of the son of the most high or the son of God. That's a title in the Old Testament. It's a role, it's, it's the title of the Davidic king. So you recall 2 Samuel 7, such an important passage in others, where God promised David that he's gonna have a son, and David's son is gonna reign as king in his place, on down through the generations, sons to rule as king, so that David's throne would be established forever. That was a covenant promise of God to David. And yet, 
The kingship was broken due to their sinfulness. They just kept failing. They kept living for themselves and not for the people, not to honor God. And all this is exposed by the fact that Joseph is this man who's of the line of David and he likely could be king of Israel, but instead of that, he lives in Nazareth. Nobody knows him. And we find he's just gonna be a carpenter. So how's God gonna restore David's son to the throne? More importantly, who did the promise of 2 Samuel 7 and others, who did it really refer to? Who did it really point to? What did it really entail? And we find that it exploded the picture of what the Davidic king needed to be. It looked forward to one who could reign forever personally. So Gabriel explains about this person. He goes further than just titles and offices. He goes to nature. He says in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this is one of the most riveting Christological affirmations of the nature of Jesus. God never described any other conception and birth that way. And this takes Son of God to an unprecedented level. It, it hints at Mary's son being more than just Son of God by office as a Davidic king, but now Son of God by nature, by nature. That that's what the promises always depended upon. And so it speaks of the mystery of Scripture, and Gabriel is, is delicate here and yet profound and also very clear. God's Holy Spirit, who is the creative power of the Most High, will come upon, overshadow Mary. And that word overshadow is rich. It's an Old Testament way of referring to God's glorious presence with his people. Think, think of God's cloud, his glory cloud on Sinai. Think of God's glory cloud covering and filling the tabernacle. Exodus 40, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That glorious presence of God, Mary, is coming upon you, overshadowing you. Or additionally, think of the Holy Spirit at the very beginning hovering like a cloud over the chaotic waters of the primeval world when God had made a bunch of stuff but had not made it beautiful yet. And by his creative, beautifying power, God makes all things beautiful. And so we look at what the angel is saying and saying, look, he created Adam from the dust of the earth. He's about to create Jesus from you, Mary. He, you won't just be a conduit. As our confessions say, the Holy Spirit's gonna take of your substance so that he'll be truly human and he's gonna join a real human nature. I mean, to the person of the Son of God so that 
He's son of God in the fullest sense, and that will mean that he's, he's holy, meaning that because he's of a human nature joined to the person of the son of God, he's gonna be free from the taint of fallen nature. He can be a child of Adam, yet a new Adam. He can be a human, but a human unfallen. That's what's gonna happen to you, Mary. That's what has to happen. You see, nothing less than this is required for our salvation and for the victory over hell, death, and sin. See, the Old Testament mystery is finally revealed. Man must bear the weight of sin because man sinned. The son of Adam must bear the weight of sin because Adam sinned. But only God is capable of bearing the weight of sin. So what does God do? God becomes a son of Adam to bear your sin for you. He dwells in the high and holy place, but comes down to the lowest place to lift us up to him. Well, what does the story say about our faithful response? So what is our response to such good news? Today, what's your response? Even during Advent, what's your response? And, and the text presses us to respond like Mary. See, Mary is not pictured as an outlier. She's not pictured as a saint in a class by herself. Mary is an example of godly piety. She's to be looked at as a model believer. She, she's a Christian. So young people here, I just want you to appreciate a, a very clear truth. Mary's a teenager. In this day, a woman could be engaged as young as 12 years old. Not married in the full sense, but engaged. Mary is probably 14, 15, 16 years old. Uh, teenagers, if you ever needed proof that God takes you seriously, you, you have it here. Just think about it, you mean after all God's done in history, to, 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 to Bring forward his redeeming plan. Nations, exodus, a kingdom. After all of that, really, he's going to entrust his plan of redemption to a teenage girl. Has it come down to that? And so in our teenage years, you know, it's a unique time. It's really unique. It's difficult. It's great but we're trying to figure out our place, how we'll be known, how we'll be noticed, what we'll be appreciated for. Like, am I the smart one, the, the athletic one, the good-looking one, the popular one, the musical one, the countercultural one? I mean, where do I fit? How do I get noticed? What makes me important? And all that's fine, all that's fine, but see that God sees you and knows you here. In fact, he gives you, he's the one who gives you meaning and purpose. God selects teenage Mary instead of some, some older lady. I mean, God selects a teenager to be the mother of Redeemer. Don't let Advent slip by you without that making a huge impression upon you. God takes you seriously. 
And parents, if you ever needed proof of how significant the nurture of your children is, don't you have it here? How does Mary get prepared to be the kind of mother who can nurture the Redeemer? How is she set up to be able to mold and shape uh, the Son of God for his task? Don't let Advent slip by without impressing upon your children Jesus' words, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Young people again, if you ever needed something to raise the bar for your personal piety and growth and grace, don't you have it here? Again, Mary is not to be seen as some holy oddity. She's a recipient of grace like you are. Do you see in yourself something, the deep personal relationship that just emanates from Mary's life here? So let's just walk through it real quick. Verse 29, Mary responds to Gabriel's greeting, greatly troubled and yet trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Mary's one to ponder and mull over truth. She's not letting that bird take the seed of the gospel away from her heart. And that's really difficult in our day and age. It's difficult during Advent season that we would actually ponder and mull over truth. But we see the fruit of that in Mary's life. The mother of the Redeemer had to be such a person. Young people, are we finding that we're doing that in our lives? Verse 34, Mary responds to Gabriel's initial announcement with, how will this be since I'm a virgin? At at first sight, it seems like she's doubting just like Zechariah doubted. Remember, Gabriel spoke to Zechariah and Zechariah said, how can this be? But really, it's totally distinct. When Gabriel speaks to Zechariah, Zechariah's been praying for his son for years. God answers his prayer, but Zechariah disbelieves God's promise and wants more. Mary hasn't been praying for a son. It's not in her world, her frame of reference yet. Mary isn't sexually involved with Joseph. So what the angel promises is totally unprecedented. Yet unlike Zechariah, she doesn't ask for a sign but trusts Gabriel's word. However, at the same time, she does ask for understanding and it teaches us that genuine faith does seek answers. Verse 38, after Gabriel reveals the mystery of who Jesus will be, very nature, God, and after he gives Mary a sign, that sign is that Elizabeth, who has been barren for years, is also pregnant because God does the impossible, which is a central theme in scripture that salvation is of the Lord. Mary responds, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Again, she's a teenager and she responds like that. I look in my life, do I respond like that? You see, being the mother of Messiah is what ladies longed for in Israel. It's a huge blessing. At the same time, it's a tremendous responsibility. And this is just magnified by the fact that now she has to go through the suspicion of being an unwed mother and then contemplating at a young age, I've got to nurture the Messiah. She could be thinking, why me? Like, let it go to someone else. Have you ever thought when God has led you through something related to your calling, that was heavy and hard, 
and you just didn't want to take that on. How about Mary's attitude here? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Well, then Gabriel advises Mary to go to visit Elizabeth. He just, he's a wise angel. He knows Mary needs it. So now again, we have a teenage girl who sets off on a very dangerous path. There's a lot of riffraff in Galilee. There are thieves on the road. And the journey is arduous, and it's 80 to 100 miles up to the mountains, four or five days walking. So why did her parents let her go? I don't think I'd let my daughter go. Her parents could be thinking, I don't understand what you're going through and the whole thing makes me uncomfortable. Go talk to someone else. And if that's ever our response as parents, we have terribly missed out. Now, we know something about her parents just because of the way they have nurtured her. Her parents are probably thinking... God's provided a godly relative who will understand what she's going through better than we can. Let's help our daughter get there. I imagine they escorted her. They reflect godly wisdom. They're seeking mentoring for their daughter. Mary herself is longing for mentoring. Gabriel spoke of Elizabeth being a sign to confirm her faith. Mary wants this. And it's an aspect of her parents' nurture of her. What about a church like ours, and what does this speak about to us, even at this stage of the gospel? She goes with haste. She exerts a lot of effort to be spiritually mothered. And Elizabeth is overjoyed to be her spiritual mother. How significant is that in a local body of believers? Spiritual fathers, spiritual fathering, We see it come out here to help Mary be the one she needs to be in order to nurture the Messiah. Well, then in verse 40, we read that once Mary greets Elizabeth, unborn John leaps in her womb. It seems that even before birth, he's acting like the forerunner. It's clear evidence of the personhood of our unborn children. And then Elizabeth acts as prophetess, beautiful words, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I mean, what a statement. You know, Zechariah's deaf right now. Good thing he didn't hear Elizabeth's words like he didn't believe. So what an amazing word, and it underscores just these godly women at the foundations of the gospel. And Elizabeth has this high Christology. She says, you're the mother of my Lord, and the Lord has spoken about this. I mean, he, she's, she sounds a lot like Psalm 110.1. Oh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that prompts Mary to erupt in praise. And this is the crescendo of the passage. We get the word magnificat from my soul magnifies the Lord. Again, Mary's a teenager. She models Westminster Confession of Faith, Catechism 1, what's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. She, the song of praise in her heart just emanates and erupts. You see, God didn't just mechanically transmit this song. This arises from who Mary is. 
And we've got to appreciate again that Mary is a young lady, a teenage girl, and yet she has this depth about her. We also need to realize that girls didn't go to school. This is a product of her parents and her regular attendance at public worship. She's taken it in orally and she's made it her own. Her prayer is modeled after the prayer of Hannah or Miriam or the Psalms. She's absorbed them and made them her songs of praise to God. And in this moment, when she is overjoyed with thanksgiving, she erupts in these kinds of powerful songs. She conveys a mighty and merciful view of God, a hopeful and expectant trust in her Redeemer. She says the Lord looks at her. Do you know the Lord looks at you? She says the Lord exerts his right arm on her behalf. Do you know that? She says the Lord blesses her and that the Lord has done great things for her, but it's not just her, it's that she knows that through her, he's gonna be scattering the godless, powerful, and proud that oppress the people of God. And it's not just Israel as a nation, but she looks at the inner reality of who the people of God are, and she calls them those who fear God. It's not that you had the blood of a Jew, you feared God, you were a God-fearer. And as Luke opens this up in his gospel, he's gonna show that through the God-man and through the gospel and faith in Christ, we become the people of God. And she can't know how all this is going to be fulfilled, but Jesus is gonna show us, Luke is gonna show us about Jesus, that he topples the power and pride of hell and death and sin at the very cross where he takes yours and my guilt on himself as only the God-man can do in order to give you mercy, in order to fill your hunger with good things. And we look at Mary's life and it, we wouldn't want to live Mary's life. We'd say it was boring and it was hard. Very little entertainment, a lot of work, a peasant life. Little social engagement, little entertainment, no Snapchat. Things that we would say make us happy she didn't have and yet it seems like she's fulfilled that maybe she knows what a later Mary, Jesus said, had the one thing needful. That she knew that her relationship with God is what satisfied her and other things can actually deprive her of experiencing that. And so we see in the Magnificat this overwhelming view of her deep and abiding joy in God that he's the giver of mercy and the one who satisfies us. And we see her display the gospel of grace before our eyes. And might something of her mulling over and pondering, might that deepen its way into our own lives during the season of Advent? That something of her response would be even more something of our response. Because our fulfillment is found in no one else than the God-man who fills us with good things. And God's people said, Amen. Let's stand.